Hey, I'm Brian, and this is Pastor Reacts. We're taking media online, generally, and looking at it through a biblical lens. Today, I wanted to try something a little different. Sermon reviews. I've been preaching and teaching and raising up other people who can preach and teach uh, for a long time and always have given a higher emphasis to learn to properly exegete scripture, get the meaning out of scripture, than be a good communicator. Communicating well is important, but you'd better get your Bible right so that what you communicate well is accurate. If you don't get the study part right and the breakdown of scripture right, then it's actually worse if you teach it really well, because now you're doing a really good job of getting people to trust and, and follow and believe this thing that you taught that was incorrect. When a scripture comes up, we should be able to look at just that scripture, look at it in context and find that, yes, it's going to speak to the thing that we're actually hearing preached. Um, if there's something, if you like this kind of thing, if you like the way I do this, go ahead and hit like, hit subscribe, turn on the bell notification so you get an update when I upload another video. Uh, if you want to hear me do more stuff like this, let me know in the comments. If you have somebody in particular, a sermon or preacher that you want me to check out to kick this off. Um, I don't even know who this pastor is or uh, what this church is. It's just one of the ones I started following during the pandemic. So this is Ringgold UMC. So here we go. Let's check out Ringgold UMC. This sermon is from 7-16-2023 and it is called Isaiah Gone Wild. Senior pastor at Real United Methodist Church. Again, we are on Prophets Gone Wild, an amusing look at the prophets. We have found our way. He did say his name, but it was very quiet. And I didn't understand it. If you'll give me just a second and I'll explain. You'll find the book of Isaiah about the middle of the Bible. If you flop the Bible uh, open, you'll find Psalms. Go right, as we say. Uh, you'll discover from Psalms the uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then, of course, Isaiah. Similar to. All right. I like that. That's good. If you're going to jump into scripture, especially something like the prophets, where maybe people don't read Isaiah all the time, like that doesn't happen a lot. I think some of that stuff, um, the prophetic Old Testament books uh, can get a little weird. And I think people don't know how to engage it. And so that's cool that he's given some context to it. I like that. <clears throat> it's good. Hopefully, what he preaches out of it, we hear that same level of like studying the context, properly addressing the scripture. And so I'm hoping that, um, you know, they're doing this kind of lighthearted look through the prophets and funny in with some funny ways. And so I hope there's some really good truth that connects in powerful ways as well. Let's see where it goes. Ezekiel, as we talked about last week, it takes about four hours to read Isaiah from cover to cover if you don't stop. Uh, it's the only book of the Bible that's larger. I've never is in done that. Psalms. Just end to end, read all of Isaiah. Week, Isaiah is the first Seems of the like four hours prophets. is quick. There are four of them Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then in Christian Bibles, Daniel. Uh, we have to mm. always qualify that because of our Jewish friends, uh, they don't recognize Daniel as a, as a prophet. They're called major prophets. Yeah, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, you would actually have uh, not only would you not have Daniel. Um, arranged with the prophets, but I think he's just with the writings. Beyond the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you have uh, an arrangement that is different. And so you have um, 
you have the Pentateuch and then you have history and prophets and writings. And, and so everything's kind of grouped differently um, in the Hebrew scriptures. Let's see what else he's going to tell us about all this. Prophets, not because they're more important or more powerful, but because they're simply big books. Minor prophets, yep. and there are 12 of them. In fact, our Jewish friends refer to them as a single book, the book of 12 are called such for the opposite reason, not because they are less important or less powerful. The books or the writings attributed to their, to their names that bear their names are just relatively small, especially compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Daniel's not all that big, actually. In Christian Bibles, the minor prophets come right after Daniel, and they finish out the Old Testament. And the major prophets, again, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and to some extent Daniel, have things in common besides being big, big writings. Uh, all of those prophets are counselors to the kings. They're, they're given direct, direct access to those in power. The minor prophets instead take their message directly to the people. The major prophets do something we call sign acts. This is getting like super deep. And on the one hand, it's cool. It does help us engage or understand as we read. It'll be interesting to hear how much more of this is right here. I don't love a very long in-depth intro of the text itself because there's a bit of an assumption that like you're buying into all of these things. But I do like a bit of personal intro that takes us from a like, hey, here's a an introduction to me or an introduction to something going on in my life or in the world. Here's something personal to me. And, and, and hopefully that kind of brings up some sort of issue or some connection. And then as we go from that, we go into, here's how that may relate to you. And maybe we can all relate to that. And then as we get a little farther, here's something that, you know, and we don't want to get too, too deep into it, but, but I think if we can give it some real life context that draws us in, sounds like he's leaning toward the study side and hopefully it gets better and better. These are outward uh, symbolic gestures that range from the semi-practical and straightforward to the ludicrous. They are at times quirky and provocative, and other times they are outright bizarre and difficult to understand. That's Hosea true. Hosea is the only minor prophet that does sign acts like the major prophet. Yeah, okay, right, because Hosea has like this massive sermon illustration sign act like he's talking about where he marries a prostitute and like that storyline is a whole illustration of God's relationship with adulterous Israel. If I was going to set up the prophets, I don't know that I would have said all of those things. It was good. It's good stuff. You'll remember Isaiah, Hosea, his major, his sign act was who he married. And then what he named his kids. Pretty big sign. Act. Oh yeah. The names of the kids were crazy. We talked about last week, he does a number of strange things including at one point digging a hole in the side of his own house and passing through it one evening while people watched, dragging out all of his possessions uh, that had been packed up like he was moving somewhere. Yep. He does this to symbolize that others would soon be taken captive too and more people carried off from Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah makes an investment. He buys a field right on the edge, the precipice mm -hmm. of when the, the city would be destroyed. Yep. He does this to show that even as he has preached the destruction, which is now upon them, he is also preaching a future with hope. 
and he believes that that field that he buys will one day be returned to his ancestors. Oh, right. Yeah. By the way, there's another time in Jeremiah where God tells him essentially to go and buy some new underwear and wear it without washing it and then bury it in a river. And if you think I'm making that up, I'm not. It seems that we could have a whole other series on prophets gone it would be cool when you say something like that and say, you think I'm making that up? Well, I'm not. Well, okay, but tell us where we can look that up because maybe I want to go find that and I don't want to have to Google Prophet Berries as underwear because I don't think I'm ready for that search result list. Digging a hole through his house was the one you picked? Anyway, okay. Let's see what else he says. Uh, we're taking a minute to get to Isaiah but kind of like recapping the whole concept of the series a little bit. Wild too, and include Jeremiah and some of the others in it. But here, Isaiah is the punchline. He has a number of sign acts. Isaiah well, is the punchline. Going naked for three years. Oh yeah, well there's At that. At the time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos. This should be on the screens for us. At the time, the it's Lord spoke not. by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. Okay, so hang on. I'm going to go back to where he mentions that. But if I heard that right, he did not give us like, hey, I'm right here. He just started reading. And he goes, it'll be on the screen. We're going to look at Isaiah and it'll be on the screen. This is where we're going to be. This is where I'm headed right now. And I'm opening it up. And right here in Isaiah 20, which he didn't say, I don't think. Let's see. We're going to check. And all right. It seems that we could have a whole other series on Prophets Gone Wild 2 and include Jeremiah oh, and back some of the others far. in it. But here, Isaiah is the punchline. He has a number of sign acts as well, including going naked for three years okay so maybe he's the one at who went the time naked. the lord spoke by isaiah the son of amos this should be on the screens for us so he just started in verse 2 of chapter 20. so it's not even like, like i found chapter 20 and as i'm looking at it it's not even obvious that we would start in 20. why don't we start on verse 1. anyway let's see what he says about all this at the time the lord spoke by isaiah the son of amos saying go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria be led away or lead away the Egyptian captives and Cushites exiles, both the young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Wow, that's a lot to say in one sermon. All okay. right. Being a prophet is a tough gig. The Lord seemingly... He's literally butt naked with bared buttocks. That is like, it's just occurring to me right now that butt naked is a biblical term. I was today years old when I realized that. I probably figured that out the last time I read this too, but... So he had to do this, and this would be a super weird thing for a prophet to do. Let's see uh, what we say about this, because it can't just be like, ha that was funny. Go home. He asks you to not only do difficult things, but potentially strange and embarrassing things, too. Wait, wait, I guess go back. A reminder that what was God that? Doesn't necessarily... Hang on. All right. Being a prophet is a tough gig. 
Okay. The Lord seemingly asks you to not only do difficult things, but potentially strange and embarrassing things too. The reason I went back and heard that again is because the first time through, I wasn't sure if he was just like broad brush applying that to all of us and saying like, sometimes God's going to ask you to do weird things. So if you hear a voice in your head saying, go get naked, just go ahead and do it. I was hoping that that is not what he did and he did not do it. So, um, no, but what he said was, wow, it seems like being a prophet was a rough gig because God sometimes had them do weird stuff. And yeah, he did. He asked them to do really, really weird things but they were attention getting things um, that got people to at least pay attention, even if they didn't listen and uh, which is going to make you accountable for having rejected it. So anyway, I guess it's a reminder that God doesn't necessarily see the way things see things the way we do. And what I particularly mean by that is the ideas of pride and shame, pride and shame tend to hold us captive and render us deaf with regard to the spirits moving as showcased by the prophets. They are called to do things that would make the average person look away or be perplexed or that's an interesting take to start on that that uh pride and shame would keep us the average person from following through on what god is calling them to do and i wonder where he's going with this let's see or maybe even embarrassed for the prophet and that's in part the mm -hmm. point these strange sign acts are meant to get us outside of ourselves or even outside of our cultural taboo taboos so that we won't be bogged down by all that stuff that normally hangs us up. The mm. kinds of things that in the end really don't matter, but in fact get in the way of the things that typically do. Laughing does this, which is not to say that God intended for these prophets to be clowns. God didn't, and they weren't. But as an example... I'm not a manuscriptor. I'm not somebody who writes out every word. I, I go with a very loose outline, but I don't have a script like this. He is turning and reading it, it I, there's a, an element of the presentation side that I'm like, it sounds like somebody who's giving a presentation. And uh, there's elements of it that feel very preacherly to me um, as I'm hearing that. And, and not in like my favorite way. Um, I don't personally love hearing things taught this way. It doesn't mean that it's bad. I just, this style of like reading the script, the way, it, you know, word for word off the page and turning the page and reading out these things. I think it produces a weird cadence that I don't love. And I think that's partially in the writing and partially in the delivery. And so it's just, it's not that it's bad. It's not that the spirit can't use it. It's just not my favorite. Um, anyway, but let's continue and listen for what he's saying um, more than how he's saying it. Um, well, laughing does make us drop our guard and receive information differently, even at times to begin looking at things differently. And we are putting the Sinax, the Sinax of these prophets in an amusing light for this sermon series for the purpose of worship. And though they certainly were not amusing in their original context, I think their strangeness was meant to function in a similar way. Sometimes it takes hearing and seeing things in a way that is absurd. And maybe we laugh, and maybe we recoil, or maybe we're left dumbfounded. But in the absurdity, we contemplate meaning in a different way than we would have otherwise. Huh. Gaining a new and better, even bigger perspective represents the wisdom of God. And ultimately, that's what the entire book of Isaiah has come to reflect. 
both for the Jews and then later for we Christians. Specifically as a whole, the book of Isaiah has come to represent the ministry of all the prophets with regard to their particular view of how God is in fact involved in human history, that God decides to act within history itself. Two things about this. Hmm. When we read about God's judgment, specifically in the prophets. Okay, hang on. You went off about how this is kind of funny, but you're not meant to laugh and just like mock the prophet. The goal is not to make them into clowns, but to get you to think about something in a different way. And that's what humor does. And that's what God is hoping that we will do as we see this. And I think there's probably an aspect of that that's accurate. And now he's, he, then he went into some pretty big, broad claims about what Isaiah is, but not giving us any reason to understand it that way. And even if I go back and like spend the four hours reading it back to back and read all of Isaiah in one sitting, which like, I think it has 66 books. I mean, like it's long, um, there's 66 chapters. And it's complicated. It's lots of different prophecies. It jumps all over the place in timeline. Um, it's kind of, there, there's a lot of different stuff that happens in it. Um, to So much so that there are some people who even think that Isaiah is like really three different authors. I don't buy into that. I think it's all Isaiah. But anyway, so there's a lot of there's a lot in there and at least give us like some anchor points to go and locate like, Oh, here's where he was saying like, yeah, here's where it helps. You know, like in this section, it encompasses this and that because he talked about how it represents all the prophets and it represents all of life and all the Bible and all of human history. Like where, why, how, how, what is it? Maybe he's getting to that, but I like, if you're going to tell me things like that, give me something to latch onto other than just like, Otherwise, it, I mean, I think it honestly, like without intending to, I think it comes off like some of those things where you just, you know, read internet comments where somebody's like, well, do your research. And it's like, what research? I'm like, where? From who? Who, do, who are you claiming said it this way? So, anyway. Um. We typically think of the legal connotations that we're used to hearing or considering when legal jargon is is the language that's being used, the idea of judgment mm. and justice. Oh, of he own. said, okay. He said he had two points. God's judgment, specifically in the prophets. Yeah. We typically think of the legal connotations that we're used to hearing or considering when legal jargon is, is the language that's being used, the idea of judgment and justice of our own time and culture. We think of a, an abstract figure, perhaps wearing a robe, a judge that impartially is metering out justice from a non-biased and perhaps a standoffish, stand-away position. And so we kind of impart that, we kind of think of that or, or impose that upon the scripture when we read of God's judgment as hmm. preached by the prophet. And what God comes across as is more punitive than I think the prophets ever had in mind. Instead, when the prophets proclaim hmm. judgment, the word that they use for it, the Hebrew word, and, and, and the reasons why they talk about it paints a very different picture. What they describe is not a standoffish God who is angrily punishing people from a faraway distance. But when they proclaim God's judgment, what they're saying is God is, is saying, okay, now I'm going to step in. For the prophets, judgment is about God's intervention. God deliberately acting in the course of human history hmm. and doing so ultimately to change the direction of the people back towards God's just purposes. 
Okay, again, show me how it says that when it talks about judgment. Hopefully, we're about to say that. But mm, some of God's judgments absolutely are punitive, and he outright claims it. Uh, but there are some things it's like, man, you got to do some gymnastics to get out of this being like a direct like, hey, you did this. I told you not to. You did it anyway. And now like, yeah, I'm going to get involved, but it's not always corrective. Sometimes it's just purely punitive and destructive. That's a lot of what God does in the Old Testament. Um, anyway, let's see. When the prophets claim the end is near, clearly they're not talking about the end the way we often do the end of all things, what they typically mean is that God is finally going to step in and, and end some of this stuff, end the practices of social just, injustice, the, the practices of social inequalities, end the mistreatment of the poor, end the theft of property and cheating by those with power, end the devotion to false gods, which instead of leading people away from their selfish and self-centered desires, only makes us greater slaves to it. So I don't like the way that this is, he's making references to things that it sounds like the prophets will say, but we're not reading any of that. He's not giving us any of that context. So I don't know from this message, I don't know any of the places where the prophets say the end is near. And I don't know how that is. It'd be great if he would show us a little bit and go, when they say the end is near, like right here, when he says this, look, what he's not saying is this, what he is saying is this, and like give us that context a little bit. I have no, there's no way to evaluate this based on scripture because we're not going to sit here and read 60 chapters of Isaiah to process what he's talking about. The book of Isaiah paints this picture over and over again, and it's 66 chapters. Show us one time. God speaks to the prophet. There's an announcement, a warning, a prediction said to the people or to the king who represents the people. Just God one. intervenes. Finally, the people continue in a new, different way forward. The book of Isaiah does this over and over and thus summarizes the work of all the prophets, in part because the book of Isaiah covers 200 years of history. Okay, it might have made his sermon a little longer, but take five more minutes like no one's going to die. It's a 24 minute sermon. No one's going to die. I mean, this comes from a guy who tends to preach about 45 minutes. So, I mean, hear me that like I would have talked longer anyway, but maybe part of the reason my message is 45 minutes is because I would have taken that scripture and I would have taken, he says over and over and over it happens. Let me show you one time it happens. Here's the shortest or the clearest or like Here's this. Here's the time that does it. But I, you know, I would make the case that when he does it in chapter five, and when he does it in chapter seven, and when he does it in chapter twelve, and when he does it in chapter thirty, and when he mention that it's in there, and I might just start scribbling and writing down. But so far, none of this stuff. You haven't given me a single reference. I wish you would give us a, a reference so we could actually engage the scripture. Early in the 1700s, in the time of John Wesley. Those who would be called Bible scholars today, back then, including Wesley himself, noticed even then that the book of Isaiah seemed to span a length of time longer than any one prophet's life. There were thoughts, of course, that perhaps the prophet could have seen that far ahead, but, but despite what we often think of prophets, they're really not future predictors. They're not, certainly not fortune tellers. They're truth tellers. 
And, and it's less about predicting the future as more and more about announcing God's reality in their own immediate time. Yes, of course, we may see how God means for their words to have a double meaning, a meaning in their time and place, and then perhaps an even greater meaning later on. I mean, yeah, but also uh, that's not correct. Even when you're saying, like, for argument's sake, let's take that. Because he said, he said, well, yeah, I mean, you might, you know, later on go back and read a double meaning into it. But that's the thing is like, yes, a majority of prophecy is calling out this is currently happening and God is not pleased with it. Here's what God is going to do. But that part, here's what God is going to do, is future prediction. And that was one of the things that was used to judge a prophet. If they say God is going to do a thing and he does not do it, you are to judge that prophet. Prophecy includes both. Give us one example of like, this is a declaration of what's currently happening here. And look, there was no predictive nature in any of this. But even if he's predicting things in his own lifetime, in a way, that's a bigger risk as a prophet. Let's keep going. But what I'm referring to in the span of 66 chapters in Isaiah isn't that, isn't that necessarily, but simply just a representation of a whole lot of years, a lot of history. And three oh, right. I forgot that that's even where he was going with this. He's talking about how, how long. And so here he's going to get into that thing I mentioned earlier, where some people think that there were three different authors because the time span. And the reason that they think that is they look at what the things are being said and they go, that couldn't have been written by Isaiah because it's too futuristic. He's writing about things that must have happened outside his lifetime. And so he couldn't have written it. It had to be somebody later. I want to hear his evidence. Show me where, show me one verse that gives some context that shows here's him writing in a contemporary way in his own mostly understood lifetime. And then show me evidence for it later. Don't just say stuff like this. Let's see what he does. Different contexts, actually. Fast forward a century from John Wesley, and we begin getting greater knowledge on old ancient Hebrew and access to even older scrolls. And or maybe he's going to take that back. discovers that the tone of the writing changes throughout the book, and Isaiah can actually be broken into three parts, very distinct from one another. The first is chapters 1 through 39, and it's often referred to as the actual prophet. This is Isaiah of Jerusalem. It represents his work, his ministry. And then you fast forward. Over a hundred years, chapters 40 through 55 are referred to as second Isaiah or the Isaiah of the exile. This is Isaiah's prophetic work continued in the name of the original prophet. It is thought by some that Isaiah perhaps had disciples, maybe even a school of prophets, as we see exemplified in other places of scripture. And then the last 11 chapters is sometimes called third Isaiah and represents a time in history where the people have been brought back from exile and have already begun to rebuild, rebuild the city, begin to rebuild the temple. If this, it is this person or group, ultimately, that helped shape and edit the book of Isaiah as we have it today in its final form, and they do an incredible job. As they do their work, clearly they have respect for each individual time period and edit very gently, and yet so beautifully weave it together in such a way as to give to us to this day the word that is God has been moving through. Okay, so 
this oh my gosh this kind of thing drives me crazy you just presented a pretty radical hypothesis for anybody who's sitting here going but there's one book called Isaiah and everybody's called it just this one book and now you're saying that some of the writing tone changes and whatnot it almost seems like there's maybe a different voice in parts of this and granted like yeah there are some stylistic changes throughout i have not been alive for even 50 years yet and i have not been a christian for even 30 years yet and yet in my sermon times you will see a stylistic difference between when i started and now you will see a stylistic difference um, based on context and schooling and everything else and you just gave three totally different contexts. You're talking about speaking of Jerusalem being threatened with exile. You're speaking of Jerusalem within exile and what will happen there. And then you're speaking of Jerusalem post exile, which is, yeah, like, you know, you're talking about nearly a 200 year span. Um, and to say that, like, like, is it so unthinkable based on all the different ways that, I mean, just the, if you go back and watch my reaction videos, they change tone and style and and I, you know coming into my own in some different ways and getting too long-winded in others. I think some of this textual criticism goes a little too far and gets weird. And it's just like so many weird made-up rules for how you disqualify stuff instead of trusting that the Holy Spirit has been working and moving through this. But then even more, seriously, show us one or two phrasings that are different from each period to show us like, look, here's something similar where you can see a style difference in the way this same kind of thing is presented differently now. And then, you know, like just, it wouldn't take long, just a couple of minutes. But if you're trying to pack all of this stuff, this is a an intro to Old Testament prophets class. This is like day one of intro to Isaiah. This is not, um, this is not a Sunday sermon. This, this is a teaching on a theorized concept of Isaiah that's had four scriptures that were unrelated to 90% of what you've said. I don't think this is a good way to preach. It's confusing and complicated for people to grasp if they don't have context for all these things. Where do you have evidence that it was edited? Where do you have evidence that the later writer went back and edited the first stuff that the real Isaiah actually wrote? All that to say, I, if you couldn't tell, I'm not really a fan of the three different authors theory. I think there are better explanations for that that actually relate to somebody knowing and encountering the living God. Um, but also, um, I don't appreciate when it's just done this way. I have a study Bible that intros one of, the, one of Paul's books. There's probably multiple of them, but I try not to read those study notes in it because it's, it's bad teaching. It's... A small number of scholars view it this way. Therefore, here is a, that's absolute fact, and we're moving forward with that as if that's the thing. And then they just keep calling into question traditional teachings from then on out. And it's like, hold on, you just told us hardly anyone buys this. And now you're saying out of nowhere, like you didn't even say, but we feel for this reason, it's the strongest case. And so we're going to move forward with the assumption that that is the valid way of interpreting this. They don't even go that far. And he didn't go that far either. He just presented it and said, like, well, they kind of discovered this. And now we're just going to accept it as absolute fact, apparently. But I don't know where he's going. And he's not talking about the scripture, except in, like, largely 
vague terms and it makes it really hard to judge or understand anything of what he's really saying in each of these places in each of these times with all of us as god's people god has been moving beginning we see it so clearly in the ministry in the prophetic ministry of isaiah of jerusalem we see it so clearly how god has been moving in all this time and we are all god's people and I've lost track of whether or not he's talking about everybody or just the people of Israel. Man, I was hoping to start with one that I'd be stoked on. Like, yeah, look how he broke down scripture. So far, he hasn't done any of that. He's presented a lot of some liberal scholarship and um, not any scriptural evidence. He's got 12 minutes left. Let's see if he brings some more in. Jerusalem. Part Isaiah of, what I of mean Jerusalem is how they leave out the fall and the, the destruction of Jerusalem. This is the big event. It's what we've talked about many times now. It's the single most important event in the history of God's people, the centerpiece, the driving force behind the prophetic work of Jeremiah, certainly Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Nahum, Haggai. Mm -hmm. And yet in the book of Isaiah, that piece is never mentioned. So what's your takeaway from that? That he doesn't mention a thing that happened. Therefore, he wrote about it afterward, so they ignored this thing that's covered by every other prophet. It's a weird case, but let's see. Let's see where he goes with it. Let's see if maybe we'll have scripture here in a minute. It's everything that leads up to it, relatively speaking, and everything that happens after it. It's almost like a subtle gesture saying that, again, that God is in all of this. God stepped into human history. It's obvious. We're riding around it before it and after it. There's something about recognizing the presence of God, even in terrible times, that brings us peace. There's something still very... Wait, what? Say that again, because... Bro. Let's see. Yo, Habakkuk, Nahum, Haggai. And yet, in the book of Isaiah, that peace is never mentioned. It's everything that leads up to it, relatively speaking, and everything that happens after it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a subtle gesture saying that again, that God is in all of this. God stepped into human history, it's obvious. We're riding around it, before it and after it. I don't know how it says that. They left out this major thing. They deleted, the. you just claimed this is the single greatest like pivotal point in Israel's history, which I would argue that's Jesus, but you know, whatever. But so the destruction of Jerusalem and going into exile being like the number one huge, enormous thing that's happened to Israel. And they wrote around it. It's almost as if they're just talking about how God is peace in the midst of these horrible. Th well, why wouldn't they write about it and say that? Like, how is that the takeaway from that missing? That doesn't make sense to me. And show me then where what they do say shows us that that's what they're saying. There's something about recognizing Bet. the presence of God, even in terrible times, that brings us peace. There's uh -huh. something still very comforting and believing in, really believing in the presence of God, even if God's immediate presence doesn't mean that everything is okay. Uh -huh. The book of Isaiah has set the standard in many ways for what prophets How? are and what the prophetic role is and what ministry meant in the life of God's people. According to the scriptures that you've read, what a prophet is, is somebody who gets butt naked to the shame of Egypt. Yep. 
for some reason. So didn't even explain that. <laughs> you've said that that's what Isaiah is, but you've given us zero evidence to show how it is what it is, except for maybe what you said at the beginning was in telling us that it takes about four hours to read it is. So when you go read it, these are all the things that you will clearly, obviously discover, except maybe not. Like the closest he's come to a scripture reference send the, since those four things was laying out where the breakdowns of Isaiah land on 1 to 39, 40 to 45, and then 46 to 66. But even that, like evidence for the editing, evidence for, like there's nothing even mentioned in like the way that they talk, he's just saying these things and like, I've probably made this mistake in the past as well, but I honestly think it's a mistake. Like we're just saying stuff. There's no scripture in it. You're just saying things. And I don't know that this comes from God's word. And I don't feel like half of what he's saying really does. And what it can mean for us today. The early Christians found this wisdom. And so they refer to Isaiah a lot. Mm -hmm. In fact, Isaiah is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New. Are you going to show us where and why? Isaiah is quoted and what relevance that has. The Apostle Paul refers to passages oh. in Isaiah over 50 times. Give us one of those. We see Isaiah used in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark. Give us one of those. In the book of the Holy Spirit, Acts. Give us one of those. in the letter of 1 Peter. Give us one of those. Of course, the most recognizable quotes are how we Christians came to see glimpses of Jesus. A foretelling, a foreshadowing of who he was, who he was, and what he did. Read a couple of Again, those. Again, we must remember the words of Isaiah had a distinct meaning, meaning in the time of Isaiah. How can we remember the words of Isaiah if you will not tell us the words of Isaiah? Okay, sorry. The words of Isaiah had a distinct what meaning of something? Quotes are how we Christians came to see glimpses of Jesus. A foretelling, mm -hmm. a foreshadowing of who he was, who he was, and what he did. Again, mm -hmm. we must remember the words of Isaiah had a distinct meaning, meaning in the time of Isaiah. Yes, they weren't just for something that would happen seven or five hundred years later, seven hundred or five hundred years later. However, God can okay. and does take the work of the prophets, sometimes they are. in their lifetime, and use it to mean something greater, something even of cosmic importance. Yes, but in general, many, if not most, scholars would say that the way to look at the prophets is oftentimes with a, a both-and kind of a mentality. And that's what you get when you get the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, is you see that, yes, there's a valid meaning right then and there for the majority of what's being said that it had a specific purpose and, and point then but then there's this deeper concept that also applies forward to christ or to what god is doing longer term and so this was a foreshadowing of what's to come and so like you know you have that in isaiah 9 for instance talking about you know for to us a child is born and the government will be on his shoulders but you cannot possibly say that that only had meaning in his time there's no way any king born in isaiah's time is going to be legitimately by isaiah called and by god called mighty god but that is in Isaiah 9, 6. He will be called, the government will be on his shoulders. It will be all of this stuff. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. 
there's no way that that applies only to that. And we all acknowledge that that applies to Jesus. It wouldn't kill you to quote a scripture here and there and show us like, here's where this shows up and here's why. And Which is how we Christians interpret passages like Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Perhaps the most famous of all the promised passages of a Davidic king. Usually, though, we just refer to verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Every Christmas we talk about that, don't we? You've now quoted two scriptures and like you're about to tell us how that doesn't mean what we all think it means as Christians or something. I have no idea where this is going at this point. Because you have lost all con. Okay. On the other hand, he did finally quote a scripture. I asked him to do that over and over and over. And now he's doing it. So that is nice. But also, like, dude, come on. What is this? We're not teaching the word of God. We're teaching some things people think about the word of God. So he's finally read a verse. Let's see what he does with it. A little less quoted, but still very well known. In a couple of chapters later, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And again, we typically just quote a few verses, verse 2 and then 6 and 7. Maybe. The people who walked in darkness. He's also bouncing back and forth between versions because he just had NRSV for the last one he read in Isaiah 7. All he mentioned was that we read it at Christmas. Um, and now, and so he is apparently making a case because now he's said it again in kind of a derogatory way that like we only quote a couple of verses like bruh that's what you're doing right now so you read four verses that were more a punchline than anything else in in your whole message it was to make a joke and point out how absurd god can get with a prophet and it was it i've seen a great light but now he's back in the esv dwelt in the land of deep darkness darkness on them the light is shown okay for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the i said those out of order government and the peace and of peace there will be no end and on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Tell us how that doesn't really apply to Christmas or Jesus. And no other, no, no earthly king can live up to any of the things that were just said. But let's hear what he says. And of course, how can we not see Jesus right. in what we call chapter 53 of Isaiah? Wait, 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 wait. Just going to read those scriptures and say, look, here's stuff we read at Christmas. And then you're going to take us to Isaiah 53 and be like, and how can we not see Jesus right here? One verse or two. How can we not see him in all of it? The chapter is titled The Suffering Servant. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. So unlike the other, the previous times, uh, this one is not on the screen so far, and he hasn't told us exactly which verses he's in. Although if we did turn to Isaiah 53, although something tells me this is not a like have your Bible and open it kind of church. What's he saying right now? Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar. I think he started in verse 2. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Did he say where he was starting? Maybe I'm not giving him credit for that. Maybe he did. I don't know. Let's see. The chapter is titled The Suffering Servant. Who has believed our message? Nope. Started in and verse to whom 1. Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar uh -huh. with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and his wounds. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So who else died for all of our sins? Afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his tears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and how is this not prophetic how do you take this into a strictly in isaiah's time how is this not speaking forward and and predictive of jesus tell us that because you said like oh we you seemingly said we make a mistake in reading jesus into these things because these all had a relevant purpose in isaiah's time as well instead of speaking of a time when these things will be fulfilled, which is predictive prophecy, which is what also what Isaiah did. Let's see if he says anything about this, because he didn't do anything. He just passed right by the Christmas verses. Judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering. The one thing I will say is he's read almost this entire chapter and I wouldn't be surprised if he goes all the way to the end. So it's about time, but he hasn't left himself a lot of time to say much about it. Man, I'd love to hear him break some of this down or talk about what it means. Maybe he's gonna turn it all around to Christ and he's gonna present the gospel right here and it's gonna be rad. We'll see. First, then he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Come on. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Yeah. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. <laughs> Sorry, I've been, I honestly, like, reading this chapter, like, I can't even get through it without giving some amens and some, like, <clears throat> come on, come on, Jesus. Um, it's so good. <sighs> How do you read it so dispassionately? It's so powerful. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Mm -hmm. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. Yeah. Isaiah, powerful prophet. All these things had, in, had meaning for his day and time. And yet we also see cosmically God's purposes for us. What was the meaning for his day and time? And what were those purposes cosmically? I mean, anybody who's heard of Jesus and how Jesus was crucified 
it's not very hard to read all that and be like, oh, that's about Jesus. But it leads you to the atonement and that type of thing too. But like, give us some contemporary like, and here's what that meant in the moment for Isaiah. But you won't. Isaiah stands out in another way. Other than Elisha, the prophet Elisha. Oh my gosh. You didn't. You didn't give us anything. You just said things and then just kept going. Mm, powerful stuff. Ooh, that was big. Moving on, different point. What? Come on, man. <sighs> What's the point of reading it then? Sheesh. Right. Who quickly leaves his home and all he knows to be the apprentice of apprentice of Elijah and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, when she is visited by the angel Gabriel, responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to, be, to me according to thy word. And perhaps those first disciples of Jesus, who, according to the scripture, dropped their fish, fishing nets and immediately followed him, mm -hmm. Isaiah stands among them as being one of the few biblical persons who responds positively and immediately to God's call. Here I am. Send me. Didn't give us the verse reference, but I know that. That's in Isaiah 6. And normally this is when the sermon jumps to the invitation for all of us to be like Isaiah. And I, and I got to tell you that. Why would it jump to that? We've not heard anything that Isaiah actually did. Uh, in fact, you've told us that like a lot of the stuff that's in Isaiah wasn't written by him. According to you, that whole part that you just read about Jesus was written 200 years after Isaiah died. What parts of that would lead us to a call to be like Isaiah? How would we have gotten there from what you've read? Like you read us some random cherry picked stuff. Like how on, why would we be in anything to be, I don't know who Isaiah is. In fact, anything I thought about Isaiah going into this, now I feel like I don't know any of that. And I just have a whole bunch of random clues and like, which parts was there even in Isaiah? Who knows? A brief mention of Mary, like quoting half a verse. And then you have like a super brief mention of Jesus calling the disciples away from fishing, quoted one part of Isaiah's call in Isaiah six. I mean, that's an epic call. Yeah. Maybe that would be the verse that somebody uses to be like, would we be those people who would step out of place and be willing to repent before the Lord? And that was Isaiah six, eight. That's what it is. Okay, let's see. That's a preacher's dream to have a church full of people with that attitude. The truth. It's a preacher's dream to have people with that kind of attitude. Not totally wrong there. We'd love to have a church full of people who have this kind of response. Here am I. Send me. I will go. But why would anybody have that response to this sermon? Is most churches do have quite a few people with that attitude. It's the only way things ever get done in the church. The problem is that there's just always more to do, so much more need than there are people ready to say, here I am, send me. In fact, it seems almost like a religious tradition <laughs> and even to some extent, the biblical precedent. Although I think we really just want it to be that way more than it actually is. The God's people- There was just a, a weird dig at the church. It was just a, like, Seems like we wish everybody would be that way. And really, there are a lot of churches where that is exactly the case, but there's so much more work to be done. It's almost like a religious tradition. <laughs> but like, what are you trying to say then? We shouldn't respond like Isaiah? 
first resist the call of God to do whatever it is that God is calling him to do. Preachers are famous for having resistance to call stories. Yeah, me too. I have one. But it's not just preachers. Okay. Most of the people that ended up leading something, a group, a class, a mission trip, a project, even a committee, often have a I resisted it first story. Mm -hmm. It appears to me that we're good, at least more naturally inclined, we might say, to say the opposite of Isaiah. Instead of what he said, we say, don't look at me. Pick somebody else, please. But the okay. truth is, the only way a church grows is when people say, here I am, Lord, send me, use me. It takes people willing to put their lives more fully in God's hands. That was a super weird and roundabout way to come back. <sighs> I'm back to the initial thought where I just feel like I'm hearing a really long graduation speech. Like it just feels like that at times the the cadence and like some of the things he's saying and it's written like a speech, like a an acceptance speech or something. Like that. Uh, this is very strange. Okay. Which includes accepting responsibility, and not just what we think we can do, but the but accepting the responsibility of what we're trusting God to do through us, which is a whole other thing. And as people do why. How is that? There's plenty of scripture. Even if you just broke down Isaiah's call in Isaiah 6, even if you just gave us that and just broke that down to show us how that's actually the point, that that's a whole other mess of stuff, just not what we're just supposed to do or called to do, but what God will do through us should we be willing to say, here I am, send me, because that's what happens to Isaiah, is look what I'll do through you. You go do this thing. Do that. The church grows because more groups are formed. New Sunday school classes appear. New ministries take off. Existing ministries expand and become more productive. God uses willing people. But I'll tell you. The point of discipleship and people saying, here I am, send me, is not to expand the programs of the church. He's talking about it as if those things are ends in and of themselves. The point is to fulfill the Great Commission. The purpose of it is to make disciples. The purpose of it is to grow the saints so that they can be raised up to make disciples, not so that they can get involved in another ministry. So we need to have more ministries and expand the programming of the church so that there can be more stuff for people to do. Like I'm not saying those things are bad, but if you get it wrong that those are an ends in and of themselves, they will be ungodly at best because they're missing the gospel and without the gospel without the great commission there's no purpose to them in a church there, there's no there's no bible in your sermon there's no christ purpose in your sermon <sighs> okay I'll tell you this as much as i know that the only way the church grows is if more people are willing to say here i am lord send me and that those who are already saying it mean it more completely, really mean it, Lord, use me, my time, talent, treasure, use it. It's what membership vows are all about. And yet I'll say that saying, here I am, Lord, send me, really isn't about growing the church. Okay. It's a byproduct, of course, it's a result for sure. But the point of it, I think, is more transformative individually. It's literally not. It's not that either. Here I am, send me, is not a personal growth journey. If you read Isaiah, 
that becomes abundantly clear. Isaiah's personal growth and transformation is not part of the story. What you see is Isaiah being super faithful and proclaiming the word of God for the direction and, and Lord willing salvation of Israel. That is the goal. That's what he's doing. So he's declaring the word so that the people of God would hear and repent and, and follow God well, that they would have pointed out to them where where things are, where they're falling short, where they need to be going, and what will happen if they don't, and some promise of blessing if they do. And even in things like Isaiah 53, what the ultimate promise is for deliverance beyond any of this, that there will one day be a suffering servant who will take this way beyond, who will take on all of our iniquity that we are being punished for, that we are being separated from God for that we are losing our homes and losing our and even once we return to our homes we still will not fully achieve separation from this sin but one day one will come who will pay for our sin and bring us true peace a, a complete shalom wholeness in God there is absolutely a sermon in that and it is not about personal transformation it's about personal transformation leading to communal transformation here i am send me to other people not on a personal spiritual journey in us it fundamentally gets rearranged and in the right way when we take on this attitude yes and the glory of god and when he does he immediately feels disconnected he feels the disconnect, disconnect between the greatness of God and, and God's people, the ugliness of God's people. And he feels it for himself. He doesn't feel disconnected. In fact, he sees it and he says in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, because I don't know if he's going to say it. I don't know if he's going to quote it. He's got, here I am, send me, without the reference on, like up on the screen, like half this ending part of the message. But what it actually says is, in verse five, then I said, what, this is after he sees God, or not even all of God. He sees God's feet, the train of his robe, filling the temple, smoke everywhere. And the only other thing he can see is flaming angels with six wings, covering themselves in humility before the Lord, flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook, blah, blah, blah. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. I have seen the King. Now I'm going to die. That's what Isaiah says. He's not just feeling a disconnect between the Lord and his people. He's saying, we don't deserve to even exist. And I have seen you. And I come from those people and I am like them. Ooh, this is where I get dusted. He's expecting the Thanos snap and he's just going to like, I'm toast. But instead, a seraphim flies down, grabs a coal from the altar, touches his lips, purifies him. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't grab a hot coal out of the out of the fire with tongs and touch it to my face or anywhere else. It's hot. It will burn you. Burns his face and scars him, purifies him with the holy fire. And then the Lord asks, who should I send? Who will go for us? Who will go on behalf of the Lord of hosts? And then Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Send me. I have been sacrificed on the altar and purified. Send me. Send me to personal journey of growth? No. First thing, go say to these people. First thing, 
the immediate response. Not, hey, I'm going to do these things with you and you're going to have a heck of a time, man, and it's really going to suck. But when you're done, you're going to be so proud of yourself. It's not a personal transformation journey. And he wonders what God might do. What is God going to do with him? How is God going to make a way? But God does. Oh, he wonders. He wonders, why am I not destroyed yet? It's, it's in the text. If he was reading the Bible, we would see what Isaiah thinks, which is what he says out loud. I am ruined, meaning I, I'm destroyed. I should die now. God does something that essentially means for Isaiah, despite his feelings, don't worry about any of that. It's not despite your feelings, don't worry about any of that. It's what happened? I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Where does the angel touch his face with the coal? On the mouth, on the lips. Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. He does not say, despite your feelings, don't worry about any of that. That's literally not what it says. He takes the whole fire from the holy altar of God and touches it to Isaiah and he is atoned for and his iniquity is removed. Your sin is paid for. You have been purified. You are now no longer a man of unclean lips because your sin has been atoned for. Now your lips are clean. They have been purified. Now, instead of being a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips, use these to speak the righteousness of God. And that's what he's going to go do. This is not at all what he's saying. If you read this, you would not land on a, like, Isaiah is feeling a disconnect. And, like, don't worry about your feelings. I got this. They don't matter. That's not what he says. I'll take care of all the discrepancies. I'll take care of the gulf between who I am and who you are. I mean, and The next yeah. thing you know is Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. This is not... That's not how that goes. If you would read the text, it would be very easy to just talk about what it says. But you didn't read the text, so then you can't. God does not say, don't worry about any of this. There's, there's sacrifice. The altar is about sacrifice and, and death. Sacrifice is death. And it's about death, paying for sin. This is past the time of the law he's already got the law he's aware that the wages of sin is death that's essentially how the law works out that blood must be shed and and he's saying i've purified you with this coal so you've passed through you have had this death you've had this purification this this sacrifice has been made for you and your lips are now clean and this is a symbolic thing that happens so that he is now qualified and purified. He's atoned for. He, he is pure before the Lord. Now the Lord asks, who should I send? And Isaiah is like, you just purified my face. I'm in. There's a change in orientation that takes place when we realize who God truly is. A God of grace and power. A God that loves and would redeem us often before we even realize what's happening. I mean, that's not wrong, but also not, wait, nope, there's still pieces of this I, I don't, I'm not fully on board with. Yes and no. 
when we come to recognize this as God's true nature and character, and not just the idea of it, but when we come to realize it as a reality in our own life, that God is a redeemer, full of grace and power, working on me and in me, even be often before I realize it. You've said that twice. Tell us about that in scripture. Tell us about how God was working on Isaiah before he even realized it. Here, that's not what it says. How are you getting that from this text? You're not. He's not getting most of what he's saying from the text because he hasn't read the text. I read the text to you. When we do that, it changes us. Yes. When we read Sometimes the text, it changes us. To God, here I am, send me for us to believe that God is that kind of God. Maybe you That's not what happens. You can try that this week. We'll call it an experiment. Maybe this week, just for a week, instead of saying amen every time you pray at the end of your prayer, whenever you pray and every time you pray, instead of saying amen, maybe in honor of God this week and in reference to Isaiah, you end each and every prayer with, here I am, send me. You want to turn that into a life-transforming prayer? Instead of just saying, ending every prayer with, here I am, send me, because that would be weird for a lot of things that people pray for. But a good way to take that turn and turn that into something truly transformative, here's an experiment. Consider, you know, pray whatever you're going to pray. Then consider saying that to the God described in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, or 1 through 4. And imagine you're standing in a thundering, shaking, smoking temple at the feet of God Almighty, recognizing your unworthiness to stand there by your own qualifications, recognizing how you have no right to be there, and that in his grace, God is not destroying you, but acknowledge, woe to me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips or a woman and I live among a people of unclean lips and I'm ruined because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Oh Lord. And then trusting that Jesus by his blood has sacrificed and, and purified you in the same way that Isaiah had his iniquity removed by a coal touched to his lips. We, as we read in Isaiah 53, that we have had our iniquity removed by the sacrifice of the suffering servant of Christ. And by his death and resurrection, our sins have been paid for. Therefore, according to Hebrews, I stand in this grace. So then, Lord, here am I. Send me. Now, there's something. I challenge you. Do that for a week. And see. do that once a day for a week. But even more, try that a couple times a day. Take the time to process that image of God. Acknowledge your unworthiness to be there. Recognize that Christ has purified you. And then from that place, knowing that your only right to stand there is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, being baptized in his name, that you can say, here I am, send me, because God has purified you by the sacrifice of Christ. That'll change your week. I don't know if that, that one would. It's missing the gospel part of what's in here. This is a 
gospel moment. Man, preach to yourself the gospel a couple times a day and see if that doesn't transform your life. Okay. I think something happens inside of us when we do that. I think when we, we take on more of an attitude uh, that, that, that when something changes us uh, about our feelings for God, and, and I think that just saying that... Isaiah's feelings for God didn't change. Sorry. That can prompt that change. Something changes about our relationship with, with God when we allow ourselves to be put in God's presence with those words. Something changes from our position of thinking God is out there somewhere, standoffish perhaps, to believing a God is here and now, intervening, a God who acts, a God inside of human history, a God who calls his people to join him in doing so. And so how about it? I would not appeal to Isaiah 6 as an example of how God is not far off and different and judgmental. Like, <laughs> that's terrifying. It's literally the description given is like, I was terrified and thought for sure I was about to die. And then I only didn't die because God purified me on his altar and then sent me out. Like, that's hardcore, man. That's like, more Sparta than warm fuzzies because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Have warm fuzzies, but recognize that he's also the righteous, holy God who is other and, and beyond us and supernatural and the creator of all of existence. That he who is all of that otherness in a very real and powerful way is also the one who gave that all up to become a human like us, to be with us. And then promises, not only did I do that one time in history, but now I'm also sending my spirit to be in you and with you at all times. Know that I'm always with you. Come on, man. It's right there. The gospel's right there. How about for this week at least? You just give it a shot. Give it a try. End every prayer, every time you pray, whenever you pray. Not with amen, but with here I am, Lord. Send me. I wonder if over time... I, I am not a fan of this really soft pitch for the gospel. Like, what if just maybe you just tried this one thing and see if that kind of made a difference? Like... Man, I could try the thing from the secret. Like, like if this is your concept of God, like I don't know that you're engaging with the holy God. Why not say amen and here I am, send me? Because amen literally means let it be so. <sighs> okay. Um, you'll start seeing not just, the God, not just the glory of God and see it differently, but see everything differently, like Isaiah. So our number one, I mean, our tangent issues of like, was it a gripping sermon? Was it interesting? Did it, did it hook us? Did it connect all the way through? Um, but most importantly, what scripture was used and how was it used? If we read that scripture, would we be able to come to those same points and maybe like the, the, you know, if we read it and it's confusing, does the sermon help us understand it better so that we can understand what to do with it? That's not what he did with any of it. 
And it's literally not what he did with any of it. He read all of Isaiah 53 and just went, that was powerful and moved on. And none of his sermon was about that. He didn't even bring the gospel back in. He had an opportunity to bring the gospel in. He didn't. He read flippantly a couple of Christmas verses and did the exact thing he bashed people for by saying, like, most people just take these out of context and just read this one verse. Usually it's just this one thing and that's what he read. And then he just moved on. Like, okay, you didn't show us a better way. Um, because like, I don't think it helps anybody for you to spend 20 minutes saying weird things about Isaiah and then five minutes reading scripture out of context and then just moving on as if you hadn't read that just a second ago and nothing you said had anything to do with the scriptures you were talking about. The main scripture you started with was an intro joke, nothing else. Really? That's all it was. And then the, here I am, send me you literally misrepresented the scripture what you said about it is not what the scripture says and if we read this we would not read that and go wow god is just such a fluffy and gracious god and just wants to be with his people and and says it's okay even if you're thinking this way that is absolutely not what you get from reading this passage you get this holy intense scene that is i mean it's so cinematic and 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 amazing so dang (laughs) i feel like i started on a bummer um but no that wasn't um i mean i think i think it was confusing um i don't think that the takeaway at the end made sense um i don't think anything that we started with led up to here am i send me um, I don't, I don't think that was a legitimate takeaway. I don't, I don't think where we started in the message should have led us there. I, um, I don't see the point of having brought in all of the other context about the other prophets to then drop it into this and say that, um, I don't think it's doing what really should be done, which is teaching from the scripture and leading people to Christ and and to follow him and calling them in turn, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. That's the the goal. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians four, that the role of the pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets is to equip the saints for the work of the kingdom. And I don't think that equipped anybody for the work of the kingdom. That should be the takeaway, but that's not the message we heard. He even said that's not the message he was preaching. So I don't know why he concluded with that. Anyway, methodologies of that kind of thing aside, um, I think much scripture was misrepresented. Much was quoted. Much of Most of the scripture that was actually quoted was quoted with little to no context given and no real purpose toward the end of the message. The here I am, send me part only became relevant in the last three or four minutes. Um, I don't think that's how you should preach. It doesn't make any sense for what the scripture says. I don't think that does the things that the Bible says are meant to be the point of disciples, disciple making or pastors and teachers. So man, um, anyway, I'll link the video below. If you want to watch that sermon without me talking over it, it's pretty short. This video is not so Thanks for watching. If you made it this far, if you like this kind of thing, like and subscribe. Let me know uh, what else you want to hear me comment and let me know your thoughts. What do you think about this um, as we're going through this? But 
And I hope that's not how you read the scripture because we do have a gracious and loving God, um, but his loving kindness leads us to repentance, um, not to an ignoring of our sin, but to an acknowledgement of how great a price was paid for our sin. Um, And that in turn leads us to a deep devotion to the one who paid for us and who calls us into great things for his kingdom, for the benefit of others, not just personal edification by God's glory, also for the expansion and uh, development of his kingdom through making more disciples and so on. So anyway, not my favorite. There's a weird start. We'll see what we get next time. In the meantime, go be rad for Jesus.